was slow to appreciate the importance of knowing the names of things in nature. Not words like tree or bird, I don't mean that, but words like chinkapin oak and Swainson's thrush. I felt that focusing too much on the specifics might diminish the joy I took in the general, that trying to puzzle out the proper name for a type of cloud might make me less able to love the sky. But eventually I met enough people who loved these things too, and I wanted to be able to talk about them. For that, you need names, names you and the other person can agree on. Because a chinkapin oak is different from a white oak, and a Swainson's thrush isn't the same being as a hermit thrush. Noticing those differences and giving each living thing its own name, and not simply lumping them into the blunt category of tree or bird, is a way of deepening the relationship, of coming to understand those things better. I'm Jill Riddell, and this is The Shape of the World. Field guides are how we come to know the names of things like birds and trees. The relationship with a field guide can become an intimate one. After all, you carry the book around with you in your back pocket. It's keeping you company on some of your most memorable trips. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of a field guide's advice, but what is it like to be someone who makes those guides? who invents them, who has the audacity to create new ones, to be the person who is telling all of us what is what and showing us how to know. I'm David Sibley. I'm the author and illustrator of books about how to identify birds and a book on trees as well. David Sibley's field guides for many of us are like Bibles. They're our way into nature, how we come to know the secret language and its customs. Twenty years ago, his work splashed on the scene, and right away the field guides were a sensation. His thoughtful illustrations, his thoroughness, the way he pointed out small tells that would give away what a bird was. Collectively, his books have sold over a million and a half copies, so I'm not the only one who feels enthusiastic about his work. He has a new book out called What It's Like to Be a Bird, From Flying to Nesting, Eating to Singing, What Birds Are Doing and Why. What was it that motivated you to write this new book about what it's like to be a bird? Yeah, this new book started as an idea for a children's book. I find that kids, if they're motivated about something, they they want all the information they can get. And that's how I was as a kid. I, I didn't want this sort of simplified kids version of a book. I wanted a real book. I started out the concept for a kid's book with the kind of information that that I remember being really excited about as a kid. That led me to wanting to include some fun facts with every species. And once I started researching those science facts, I was learning so much, learning things that were completely new to me after a lifetime of studying birds, that then became the entire book. I changed the entire book about the amazing things that birds do, the amazing ways birds are. Let's get into that. For me, that's one of the reasons I love being in nature is that it allows me to see all the different ways there are to be alive and to try to imagine what it might feel like to be something else, like a bird. I was interested to hear the part about the chickadee and how it can perceive the color ultraviolet and then how important that turns out to be. It's something we can't even comprehend what the world would look like. We see primary colors, red, blue, yellow, and the in-between colors. They're seeing a whole other range beyond violet. We have no concept of what the world would look like with extra color added to it. In the case of chickadees, 
we see the male and female chickadees as looking alike. They all have black caps and white cheeks, but the male chickadees have a bright ultraviolet on their white cheeks. So to the chickadees, the males are really obvious. Because the male's face that appears white and identical to the female's actually isn't white at all. It's some fantastic color beyond purple that the chickadees can see and we can't. It's hard to fathom. What about sleep? What are the unusual ways that some birds sleep? One species that's been researched a lot recently is white-crowned sparrow. Another species that's really common in parks and people's backyards, in the U.S. anyway. It has a sweet little song. It's a very common migratory sparrow. So they winter in the southern U.S. They nest up in the far north around treeline in the Arctic tundra. So they have 24-hour daylight in the summer. Well, and then when they're wintering in the southern U.S., they have 10 hours of daylight. The researchers have found that in the winter, they sleep from sunset to sunrise. So they're sleeping 14 hours every night. In the summer, on the breeding grounds, they only sleep a couple of hours every night. They're active 22 hours a day. During migration, they're active during the day, finding food, finding water, and then they fly all night. So they have these three completely different sleep regimes at different seasons and function just fine through all of it. It's hard to imagine having the physiology to handle that much variation. And chimney swifts, a good city bird, in the book you say they sleep in the air while flying? Yeah, several species sleep while they're flying. The chimney swift, which is a common bird in the eastern U.S., nests up here in the north in the summer and then winters in South America. And the evidence is possible that they spend the entire winter in the air. You mean literally? They never land or rest? It's confirmed now through tracking studies. Other species of swifts in Europe and one from the western U.S., they spend the entire winter in the air, six months or even more, continuously flying. Another study on frigate birds, bigger birds, they can carry a larger tracking device that records more information. So in that study, they found that the frigate birds were sleeping while they were flying, but only sleeping a fraction of the time that they would sleep when they had access to a perch. So instead of sleeping hours every day, they were only sleeping for minutes at a time, a total of an hour and a half each day. I can't quite understand why that would be an advantage, why it would be better for the chimney swift to never land and just to keep flying all winter long, why that would help it evolve and be more successful. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, you can look at those kinds of questions for anything, any, any bird, anywhere, Why? Um, (laughs) And the chimney swifts can find food up high in the sky. There's actually a lot of things to eat up there, 10,000 feet. And one of the things that's up there is baby spiders. When the spiders hatch from the eggs and they put out a strand of silk that catches the breeze and carries them up into the air so they can disperse across a wide area. But some of them get up really high. And apparently that's one of the things that chimney swifts are eating five or 10,000 feet up in the sky, is baby spiders. That's such a rarefied diet in <laughs> yes. such a highly specific location. Yeah. So they fly around at, you know, 60 miles an hour, covering a lot of ground or a lot of air. And uh, 
<laughs> eating baby <laughs> spiders, and there's no need to come down. With the frigate bird study, they found that when it was time to sleep, they would circle up very high and just drift, just kind of set their wings and drift so they could tune out for a little while, just take a break and coast. And another thing with the swifts and the frigate birds, their feet are very specialized, so they can't perch on a twig or on the ground. They can only cling to a vertical wall, the inside of a chimney, the inside of a hollow tree, and those are the kinds of places where they would choose to roost, and those places are hard to find. When they're in an unfamiliar place like the Amazon rainforest, it's safer for them to just stay in the air and not try to find a place every night to sit down and rest. That's just so strange. <laughs> and again, like so many times I think about things that I see birds doing that seem like they would be completely unpleasant, and I realize that they're just made so differently than I am. In your book, you talk about how instinct works to motivate birds to do the right things, to make the right moves, probably through feelings, that birds likely experience senses of pleasure, anxiety, pride, and so on. And that's, that's the only way to explain how birds make decisions. I wondered always about woodpeckers. This morning, there was a downy woodpecker working away on a wood column on my front porch. And I've always thought that if I were a bird, I couldn't imagine enjoying banging my nose against a tree over and over again. Um, or to be an Arctic duck that dives down into the coldest, coldest imaginable water, but to try to imagine not just doing it, but also finding that to be intensely pleasurable. Yeah, I talk about that in the introduction of this book. It just makes sense to me that that's how instinct would operate to, to motivate birds to do the things they do. Instinct is not a set of instructions that has to be followed robotically. What I see in birds and what I learned from all this research is that birds are making decisions all the time. There are different ways to solve a problem, different priorities in each moment. Birds have to choose what to do, whether to go get that seed or stay undercover because there's a predator. They're assessing risk. They're weighing their options all the time. That made me think that these feelings, these fundamental sort of subtle feelings that we have in different situations, things like anxiety and satisfaction, the birds could be operating under something really similar just instinct, that that would be the, the motivation. <laughs> instinct gives them the idea of something they need to do and then motivates them to do that by feelings of satisfaction, of pride, of fear, anxiety. Which is similar often to how we decide what to do and probably other animals as well. Yeah, and, that, and a couple of examples that I use for, for humans, you know, the satisfaction that you get after raking leaves and mowing the lawn or the satisfaction that new parents get when they have a freshly painted nursery and a nice crib and some bedding for the baby. We call it nesting. That satisfaction, that feeling of contentment and pride, I think is instinct. And I think that birds probably feel something similar. They feel compelled to build a nest. And when it's done and looks nice and ready for eggs, they feel good about it. Yes, that was one of the things also that I found really fascinating in your book, that generally the male of a species is bright and attractive and sings loudly, makes big noises, and the female tends to be camouflaged and has protective coloring. 
But I didn't know that that was a sign when the two birds are more equivalent in appearance, that that's a sign that they're sharing those what you called household chores. Yeah. So the nesting duties, the shared responsibilities at home have a big influence on what the male and female look like. A species like Canada goose, where the pair stays together, they both help raise the young, male and female look alike. In mallard and all the ducks, the males have no responsibility beyond fertilizing the eggs. The female builds the nest, incubates the eggs, raises the young, and in those species, the male looks very different from the female. The female that has the camouflaged appearance, and the males look really flashy, really showy to attract a mate. They have to stand out from the crowd so that the female will pick them as a mate. I'd certainly observed those differences before, but didn't know that that was a way of knowing what their behavior was like. As we start to go to more of your story, tell me how you're faring during this time. We're right in the height of the best part of the birding year for most of us who like yeah. to see the neotropical birds coming through the northeastern part of the United States and the upper Midwest where I live. How, how has that been for you so far? Yes, I'm sheltering at home, but I'm very lucky to live on a farm in central Massachusetts. So we have about 120 acres of open fields and, and hundreds of acres of woods that's accessible from the back door. So. I can feel pretty satisfied just watching the migration right here at home. And we had just this morning, a lot of northern flickers showed up. They're passing through, just arriving and heading north. And the first blue-gray gnatcatcher of the year was falling outside this morning. Oh, nice. Um, you know, I actually have an association with you and flickers. Uh, you have that beautiful illustration in the near the front of the book, but also, I heard you give a talk in 2003 at Ryerson Woods at their Smith Symposium. Oh, and yeah. I always remember something funny. You said that when you worked at Cape May, whenever somebody would call on the bird hotline or they'd want to know the identification of a bird, they wouldn't even have to start describing it. You could just say, it's a flicker. <laughs> that, yes. that was the most <laughs> common bird that people wanted to know about. <laughs> yeah, and they're so bizarre looking. Flickers have such unusual plumage. Can you describe it for people that uh, are listening? Yeah, so it's actually a woodpecker, but it's a woodpecker that forages mostly on the ground eating ants. They have a very odd posture, nearly horizontal, but just slightly angled up a little bit, but very short legs. They hop around on the ground. They have overall brownish, but with black barring on the back and black polka dots on the underside a big black band across their breast, a red spot on the back of the head, and a long black bill. And then when they fly, their ones in the east are bright yellow on the underside of the wings and tail with a big white patch on the rump. They take off and they're flashing, flickering yellow and white as they fly away. They're really striking looking, and people who aren't familiar with them will pick out a few details of that plumage to say, it's got a long bill, a long straight bill, and red on the head, and polka dots all over. Some they pick out any three random bits of plumage, and you could have a really hard time thinking about what bird, what bird this person is trying <laughs> to describe based on any three random points of flicker plumage. 
Um, so it, it led to a lot of confusion. We eventually figured out that okay, your first your first thought should be Flickr. Is <laughs> are these features the person is describing? Do they fit a Flickr? And often they do. That's funny. Well, it, it's certainly there's nothing minimalist about the Flickr design. It seems as though it was designed by a committee where everyone had a different idea of the look they were going for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, David, how did you get started with your interest in birds? Yeah, well, um, my father's an ornithologist, so I'm sure that had a—he <laughs> studied birds. That definitely had an influence on me. But I was always interested in birds. I, I can remember being four or five years old, and I liked to draw, and I liked nature and birds in particular. I would look in my father's office and pull some big bird book off the shelf with big pictures and trace and copy the pictures of birds out of his books. And, of course, when I showed an interest, he was very encouraging and, and able to offer lots of opportunities for me to learn more about birds, to go out into the field with him and his colleagues. We started a backyard bird banding station when I was a kid. So when I was eight years old, we were trapping birds and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service runs a program. They issue individually numbered aluminum bands. So you'd catch a bird, put a band on its leg, which doesn't hinder the bird in any way, and release it. And hopefully later someone would catch that bird again and know where it started, where it ended up, if anything else changed. So having an opportunity to do bird banding and, and other things, um, I was able to see birds, to hold birds in my hand is just an incredible experience to feel how light they are, but full of life at the same time. We moved to Connecticut when I was about 10 years old, and Roger Torrey Peterson, who's the father of the modern field guide, the, he produced the first modern field guide in the 1920s. Um, he lived about 20 miles away from us in Connecticut, and I met him a few times when I was a kid. No kidding. That's a big celebrity sighting. And for a young kid to have contact, Roger Torrey Peterson must have been amazing. Yeah. And I knew a lot of the other bird watchers that we were traveling around with and, and going on field trips with on the weekends knew him and, and talked about him as a real person. So looking back on it, I think growing up, I had this sense that I was interested in birds and drawing and all the adults that I knew and um, associated with on the weekends, all the people who came to visit the house, everybody was interested in birds. Everybody used field guides. And there, 20 miles away, is Roger Peterson, who made a living writing field guides. It seemed to me as a 12-year-old that writing field guides was just something people do. <laughs> sort of a <laughs> normal career path that I could choose. <laughs> and that was what I chose. Well, you had a very small sample, right, of adults that you were looking at, and they were all yeah. interested in that, and that seemed the normal way to go. Yeah. Aren't you glad that it, your dad's friends weren't all lawyers? <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I would have ended up with a different upbringing, but I'm very glad that I uh, was able to follow this path. What did you first go to when you started drawing birds? People talk about your drawing at age five. Were you just reaching for a 64-pack of Crayola crayons, or uh, did you start right away with some nice little watercolors, or how did you begin? Um, I started and, and continued with just pencil, pencil on paper. And 
I experimented a little bit. I dabbled in watercolor and pastel and other media, but pencil on paper was what I always went back to. And I think for me, from very early on, it was real scientific illustration. I was drawing because I wanted to record on paper the things that I was learning about birds by watching them. How do you think the aims of scientists and artists are similar to one another, and how are they just totally different from each other? Do you feel they call on different resources within yourself for the two types of work? For me, I don't think there's a divide. The two things for me just go together. They are intertwined. Drawing is a great way to focus, to really force you to look closely at something. Drawing for me was actually a, a way of studying birds, a method. The art and the science are inextricably <laughs> linked. I teach creative writing at an art school, and one of my assignments for one of my classes is that my students need to learn and memorize so that they'll know forever the names of five plants. Um, and generally, people's thoughts are far from that when they're in a creative writing class. I'm very interested in this idea of how it is that we remember things. And in the back of your book of How to Be a Birder, you talk about the importance of action, of doing something physically active in order to remember what you're seeing when you look at a bird, whether it's drawing it or writing a line of poetry. It seemed to have embodied that from a young age, of understanding that link between what it was going to take for those lessons to sink in. Yeah, when I'm looking at a bird, the drawing really forces me to ask questions in a way that I wouldn't if I was just admiring that bird. There's a particular way that you have to look at something in order to draw it. You have to understand the whole shape and then how all the details fit together inside that shape. There's a, a quote that I like from a, a book about drawing. It says, a drawing is a picture of our understanding. In order to draw something, you have to understand it. If you don't understand it, you can't draw it. You know, I also am interested in the way that we learn to identify something so much better from illustrations than from photographs. So when I was young, I uh, wanted to learn the wildflowers, and my mom bought me a guide from one of the Audubon series of guides, which used photographs in all of their uh, guides instead of illustrations. And I think to her it seemed more modern, seemed like it would be better to have actual pictures instead of drawings, like the real thing instead of the interpretation, but it was a total disaster. It was very hard to identify things from photographs, and I think continues to be very hard if you're learning it for the first time to learn the details. And do you know anything about the neuroscience of why paintings and drawings are so superior in helping someone understand what they're seeing? My sense is that an illustration is better for that kind of education just because it strips away all of the extraneous information, especially strips away any sort of narrative. A photograph is always one instant in one bird or flower's life. There's always a story in the photograph, even if it's just that instant, that moment. It still tells you what the scene was like, what the some sense of the weather, the lighting, the habitat, the surroundings. And the thing that you've just seen was probably in a very different setting. It's like if you have a photograph of a bird from Florida in the winter sitting on a fence wire on a sandy beach, and the bird that you've just seen was in a bog in northern Vermont, <laughs> you're going to have a very hard time reconciling that Florida photograph with the bird that you've just seen. An illustration can take away all of that and just show you strictly the bird. 
that always really rang true for me, that drawing in particular forced me to develop an understanding, to gain an understanding of the bird. But I think that anything that focuses your attention in any way that makes you take a little bit of extra time and look at details of the bird or whatever you're looking at, those things, whether it's writing poetry or just keeping a journal or drawing, anything that makes you slow down and look at some specific part of the bird will go a long way towards uh, helping you to understand it. Even if it's exactly the same species in the same pose, the, the narrative of the, the scene is so different. The features of that species. You, you sort of project your own story onto it then. I wonder also if there's something about our being social animals, and we learn so well from other human beings. It's one of the things that makes us extraordinary over other intelligent animals is that we're very quick to pick up on a tool that someone else is using and think, oh, I could also use it for this. And then somebody sees me do that and thinks, oh, I could add it to this other thing that I'm doing. And that's how our civilization is built. And I feel like when I look at your drawings and I'm in the field and I'm trying to identify something, it is almost like having you or you know an intelligent guide with me saying, oh, but it, see, it doesn't have that eye ring, so it must be this, and steering me gently in the right direction. There's something about your illustrations that feel like a conversation. Uh, well, yeah, I can, I can see that. I'm sure that there's some of that happening as well. What I'm doing in the illustration is simplifying the appearance of the bird down to the essential shapes and patterns. I have a particular style. Every each artist has their own style of doing that. <laughs> if you look at the whole the whole field guide, you've got thousands of my illustrations. You sort of subconsciously get familiar with my style and understand what I'm trying to get across. So it's sort of a distillation of the essence of that species. Right, and it's one human being communicating with another human being about the kinds of things that human eyes notice, as opposed to a photograph being more neutral, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So it's my own personal interpretation of the essence of the typical appearance of a song sparrow as compared to a fox sparrow. So yeah, yes. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of that also going into the illustration so when you go out to uh, look at birds now, do you ever need a field guide or an app? And if so, do you use your own to remind you of what your self from 10 years ago was thinking about when they uh, did that? Or what's your relationship now to those kinds of tools? I don't use a field guide when I'm looking at birds in North America. These species I know well enough. So I, I look at my own field guide mostly if I have an opportunity to study a bird in the field, I will pull out the app or the book and look at the illustrations that I did to see if I need to make some changes or to see oh. <laughs> how, how well I think I captured that species and make some notes about changes I'd like to make. I do, if I'm traveling in other parts of the world, like in Central or South America or Africa, if I'm seeing birds that are completely unfamiliar, I have to use a field guide there. And that that's always a really eye-opening experience for me to to try to use someone else's field guide to identify birds that I'm not familiar with. And it's, it's always uh, really gives me some good insight into what works, what's frustrating, and, and what's good in a field guide. So I get a lot of ideas for w ways to improve 
so which bird or drawings by other artists do you most appreciate? So as a when I was growing up, the paintings by Fuertes, Louis Agassiz Fuertes, he was from New York, but way ahead of his time for doing paintings of birds that were so lifelike. He had a real knack for capturing the texture of feathers and sort of this sleek but fluffy <laughs> appearance of birds. And um, really the first, a great leap forward in bird illustration to show them as really lifelike and active. And he was painting starting around 1900 up till he died in an accident in the 1920s. But he stands above a lot of other illustrators. He had a great sense of how birds pose, how they stand, how they move. And in more recent work, there's a Swedish illustrator, named, a painter named Lars Johnson, who did a field guide to birds of Europe. I discovered his work when in the early 1980s when I was really starting to think seriously about doing a field guide, and I was just blown away by how, how beautiful and accurate and artistic his work is, and or sort of scientifically and artistically. He's, he is uh, just amazing um, with his paintings of birds. Was there any particular bird that you remember identifying completely on your own without your dad telling you what it was that was the first one that you figured out on your own what it was by looking at a field guide or having your own sort of sense of discovery about it? I think as kids, we're so good at pattern recognition and learning a system, learning patterns, learning as kids nowadays, kids learn all the Pokemon cards or kids memorize baseball statistics. And for me, it was birds. And through just looking at pictures in the field guides and learning some birds in the field, I developed an expertise in bird identification that pretty quickly matched my father's. He had been a birder, but also mostly a professional ornithologist. There were specific things that he studied and did. And bird identification, it's a separate skill that requires a lot of practice and a lot of study, a lot of focus, which I could do as a kid, not having many other responsibilities. It also requires really good eyesight, quick reflexes, good hearing, all those things that kids are good at. So I mean, one particular experience I remember not long after we moved to Connecticut, it was my first time seeing a, a spring migration in the northeastern U.S. We had come from California, so seeing the warblers migrate back in the spring, and many of them were new for me. They were all life birds. And I remember one morning being out at the local park where people went to look for the latest arrivals of warblers and other migrants. And looking down along the edge of this river and seeing a prothonotary warbler, which is a rare bird in Connecticut. Only one or two each year make it that far north. And I looked down there and knew instantly from the pictures in the book that that was a prothonotary warbler. And I said, oh, there's a prothonotary warbler down at the edge of the river. And my father and a couple of other people we were with said, oh, no, <laughs> it can't be a prothonotary warbler. They're not around here. And they looked and <laughs> and it was. They said, what? It is a prothonotary <laughs> warbler. So the first one I ever saw, I just knew it from the pictures in the book. And uh, I think I was uh, maybe 11 at the time. Birding, bird identification was my real 
passion at the time and uh, just studying, learning from books, um, learning from other people. It uh, just uh, developed very quickly. I'm always very interested in young people that get that early victory like that over their elders. I think about the way that boys will learn everything about dinosaurs, and it's very easy to eclipse the knowledge of a parent in the field of dinosaurs. Yeah. And in your case, you uh, you know, you know, had a father who knew a great deal about birds, and yet you had that little tiny moment of getting an edge on an elder at an early age, and there's something intensely satisfying like that when you're a child. Yeah, and birdwatching is great. It's a great hobby for kids that way because... It plays to all of the strengths of young kids. <laughs> your, your brain is just a sponge soaking up all of these different patterns and information. And um, your eyesight and hearing is so much better than the adults around you that you can spot more birds and hear more birds and see and hear the subtle differences that many of the adults can't. So it's... Um, for a kid who's really passionate about birding, and I've met a lot of kids out there who, who are, a 12-year-old can be the expert in the group. Yeah, and there's uh, there are so fewer distractions. It's the same way that some kids can become really excellent at chess because they're not also worried about supporting themselves yeah. and doing all the <laughs> yes. other things that that adults exactly. have to do. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Did you did you collect anything? Did you have other kinds of collections? I think of a, a birds for. Um, children as being in that realm of collection and addition. And like you mentioned, Pokemon cards, where you're adding another one to it. Was there yeah. anything else that interested you that was parallel to that? I, I think there was definitely a, a collecting aspect to it, and I enjoyed collecting everything. I, My brother and I had a baseball card collection and football cards for a couple of years. Um, then we started collecting. We had a, an insect collection. Um, a butterfly collection. I started collecting rocks, and I had a little natural history museum going <laughs> in my room with all the things I was collecting. I, I started pressing plants, collecting flowers and leaves, and um, just anything, and it, it gravitated towards uh, nature. I ask that because I know kids like that. Those things sort of go, yep. they do tend to go together, don't they? And um, and then just uh, then you and then in the 80s, you uh, my understanding of your stories, you sort of took off on your own in a van with this idea of the field guide in mind and started going on the road, looking at birds, drawing, observing, thinking about that structure. Um, what was that time like for you? The 80s were a great, a great time for me. You would have been in your 20s at the time? Uh, yes. I, I left college after a year and just to pursue my field guide dream, just to travel around the country watching and drawing birds and learning as much as I could about them. I got a camper van and I just crisscrossed the country, spending three months in Arizona, three months in California, three months in Florida, Georgia, Cape May, New Jersey, and then shorter trips from those places out to Alaska, the Canadian Arctic, Newfoundland, South Dakota, Mexico, just to see as many birds as I possibly could and, and to get to know all the species at different seasons and different places. 
And uh, I supported myself by leading birdwatching tours. So I, I had a job with one of the tour companies. So about six times a year, I would fly off to some place like Alaska or Churchill, Manitoba, and lead a birding tour and make enough money from that to support myself for the rest of the year because my expenses were extremely low. <laughs> Just uh, maintenance, maintenance and gas for the van and food. That was all I had to pay for. What did you look like back then, David? Were you kind of the hippie, long-haired, uh, <laughs> oh, had three T-shirts to your name kind of person yeah. who had gotten them all from the birding expeditions you were on? Or <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I had long hair. I, I cut it once in a while. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, it was just jeans and T-shirts and keep my clothes until they were completely worn out and then find something new. Did you have dark moments where you just thought this was never going to come together, or did you feel buoyed every morning you got up and got to look at birds? I was generally always pretty excited about it. There were a few times when I sort of wondered what I was doing and where it was all going, but mostly I, I wasn't really thinking about the future so much. I was just enjoying each day. I, I had so much fun, got so much satisfaction out of just walking around every day, looking at birds and learning about them and sketching that that was all I needed. I know you have two sons and you're a father. And sometimes I ask the women scientists that are on The Shape of the World of whether they have some kind of an insight that's come to them from being a parent about either the their research subject or about natural history in general or the human condition, um, did becoming a parent change anything about your understanding of birds or nature? I think that becoming a parent is probably responsible for the, the actual production of the field guide. <laughs> that uh, My early life, as I just described, was pretty uh, free and no schedule, no goals, no real thought to the future. Having kids really made me a lot more about the future, and I think it pushed me to sit down and actually produce the field guide. It was simultaneous that I, my first son was born and I got a contract for the field guide. Um, the same, oh, that's incredible. The same year. <laughs> and once I had the contract and kids... It was no more uh, drifting around the country in a van. It was time at home sitting in the studio painting with this goal of producing the book. But I feel like all those years went into that, like all that buildup, all those was like a big deep inhale and the production of the books in some ways is an exhale. I think of it as two completely different stages of my life. It was kind of a long information gathering period. And I was ready once... 1993-94 came around, I was ready. I was done gathering information. I felt like the mountain of information that I had gathered was ready to start to process and put on paper. And that next stage was completely different, but also immensely satisfying to actually sit down and put all that information to use. So from where you sit now, do you have any kind of a life philosophy that's come out of this or a basic tenet or a phrase you repeat to yourself to keep yourself going? My sort of style of approaching every question, every problem is quiet study and processing and 
incubation, you might say. I look at a question and think about it and take a lot of time to process it. I know what I need to do. Um, sort of my, my approach to life, I guess, my, my approach to any question, any problem is on a smaller scale, the same thing I did with the field guide, just study and think and process. And, and I'll often get inspiration from very different sources. I'll wake up one morning and think, oh, I read that three days ago, that applies to this. Some time to figure out what I need to do, what the answer is, or what the approach is that will work. I guess that's my, uh, my life philosophy. David, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with David Allen Sibley inspires you to learn the name of a bird you've been seeing around and maybe wondering what it was. Next week, we'll be talking with Dr. Katherine Greenwald, a biologist who studies amphibians. She will be telling us about a type of salamander that has an interesting approach to sex. It is definitely the weirdest alternative mode of reproduction that we know of. Until then, enjoy the birds. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. The Shape of the World is a completely carbon-neutral endeavor, thanks to reductions we made, and from a carbon offset purchased from Tradewater. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about David Sibley's work and a drawing of David by the artist Nicole Vigil, and much more. The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Loza. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to Catherine Zuckerman at Penguin Random House, who suggested the interview and helped to arrange it. And to today's guest, David Allen Sibley. Thank you.